0: just a boring intro, but uh, welcome to the HR Evolution. This is a podcast really about the revolution of HR for the evolution of business today. And HR has really changed a lot. Um, And uh, Chris, myself, Bobby, and several others are really passionate, like yourself, about the field and the massive amount of opportunities that there are for us to grow in this space and to grow our value within an organization. And at the end of the day, have that individualized experience for that one employee um, so they're thriving individually, holistically. And no two days are the same as we commonly say in HR. And uh, sometimes some of these concepts when we have guests on the show, it's it's always tossed to the side because they don't have the time to even think or implement something like this. Um, so we try to take a time out and have conversations with with leading professionals like yourself to really just pick your brain and have a discussion about what your lessons are to hopefully teach somebody else to become that effective stakeholder um, and stakeholder manager within the organization to really build that trust uh, to 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 drive change at the end of the day. Um, so myself and Chris, uh, we could not be more excited to have you on the show today. I'm going to ask you a quick first question before I pass it over to Chris. If I caught you in the shower, now it's a cold shower after one of your rugby games, <laughs> what song would I catch you singing to at the top of your lungs?
1: So at the moment, I feel like I'm only singing Elmo songs. And when he needs to calm down at night, when you're getting ready for bedtime, when he's in his bath, we play Elmo. When he's in the car and he's getting ratty, we play the Elmo songs. He just loves it. So now I feel I sing... Elmo had four ducks. I caught myself singing a song the other day
0: for Miss Rachel from Angelo, and I was like, it was like playing in my head, and I was like, what the hell? Why is that playing in my head right now? You guys will go through phases.
2: You'll go through phases, and whatever that next phase is. Right now, it's
0: Mickey Mouse too, and the intro to Mickey Mouse Playhouse is Miska Muska
1: Mickey Mouse,
0: (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like, oh my god. That's
2: great. That's great. I love so, it. So, Chris. Yeah, I, James, I, I had to ask him the elmo question, but you did. And I'm glad you did. So it's great to be here again, Kevin. Thanks so much. James, awesome to have you on the podcast as well. Too. And you know, one of the purposes of these of these calls and these shows is can we humanize HR? as Kevin put. Right. So we like to get to know the people behind HR. You know, just walk us briefly through, James, kind of your own career. How you got into the field, you know, how you kind of evolved and learned as you went through it, ultimately
1: to where you are today. You know, tell us about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think like most people kind of fell into to HR and people work um, wasn't something I set out to do. But um, when I, when I was machine, I was back in the UK, as you could guess from my accent, not a <laughs> New Jersey accent, but uh, originally it was over in the UK. Although I've been in the US for about twelve years now, and. Uh, so well, we're going to ask you about your Jersey accent before the yeah. end of this call. I'm sure you got one. I'm sure you can do it.
0: Ten more years, you Go might ahead. have it, James. Ten, Ten more years. I might
1: have it down. Yes. Sure. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I you know, fell into to work with um, in actually UK retirement work uh, initially, which was kind of as exciting as you would expect, but uh, working with trustees and groups over there on a grad scheme with a consultancy in, in the UK, um, they were able to bring me over to the US to get involved in international benefits work uh, and a little bit of compensation and and broader work around that and almost every stage essentially in my career where someone said do you want to get involved I've said yes and just taking opportunities to get broader and I've always enjoyed that broader exposure so going from kind of a very specific area of UK retirement having an opportunity to then go and apply that internationally uh, get involved in like medical plans, um, insurance. Looking at not just the design, but the financing of those as well. That that was really cool to then work with big multinationals, and there are plenty of them in in New York, New Jersey uh, tri-state area where I am at the moment. Uh, yeah. And you can see some kind of real, real cool projects um, about, about how companies were delivering the, the best benefits possible for their people. So it kind of fell into that area. And then the project came along when I was a couple of years into that where I got to go on-site and support our M&A team. Um, and so I was on-site with a large financial um, institution in, uh, in New York. You have probably all got their cards in your in your wallet, but yeah, uh, one of those companies. And they were doing a huge spin-off at the time. And it was the first time I'd gone on-site and actually seen what my, my clients were going through day-to-day. And being part of the speed of that M&A activity and seeing that... Rather than just preparing a small area of HR, actually, it's interconnected with everything else. Yeah. And then, particularly in an MA environment, it's not just thinking about, well, what do you want to deliver in six months in a year? You're thinking, what are we doing in the next six hours? What's going to happen in the next six days? <laughs> the MAs have moved so fast to such a crazy pace. And you're working directly with business leaders, with finance, with legal, with technology. And you're seeing the interdependency across all these different groups and how the decisions and the speed in which you move impacts all these different areas of the business and actually makes a direct impact like it's really easy to link back a successful MA deal to did it achieve the synergies you wanted did it get the share price did it give us access to the market did it, that we want did it give us the people that we needed we were looking for talent all of those areas and i just found that so exciting and that pace that going back to maybe just benefits work was a little bit slow at that point so yeah. so from there onwards i've kind of involved it in people MA both As a consultant, uh, focusing purely on it for about four or five further years. And then um, actually for the last three and a half uh, um, years, I've been in-house at uh, John Wiley and Sons. So we're a a, a knowledge company. We're a a publisher in research and education, uh, academic as well. Uh, We um, had been very acquisitive in the past. So we're quite an old company. We're actually over 215 years old, but had really kind of developed into a lot of new areas, acquired a lot of businesses and didn't. Have uh, necessarily the right processes and tools in place to make those integrations successful. So that gave me an opportunity to come in there. And then, as I said, I keep saying yes to getting broader. So now I (laughs) am the VP of not only MA, but also uh, benefits in the US and globally, and uh, global mobility and immigration, too. So I have very little people, but it's all from kind of the opportunity of, do you want to have a go at this? And thinking, yeah, sure. Yeah, I love that. I love that spirit. I love
2: that attitude. Um in quite quite the range there. Uh, you you mentioned a lot that I'm sure we're gonna cover yeah. as we continue the conversation. So thanks for walking us through your journey. That was fantastic.
0: I, lo- I love how I like the common sentiment, though, to, to James's point is I, I fell into this, right? like <laughs> That's like the added, added verb. Um, it's, it's just hilarious to hear. But uh, even hearing about the company that you're at now, James, 215 years old, I mean, how many times has that company had to reinvent itself over 215 years, right, to, in order right. to stay in business? I I'm sure there's a lot of envious companies that are no longer publicly traded on the S&P 500 that, uh, that, that wish that they had that same level of innovation and creativity. Um, so I kind of want to go back to, I, I, I think, when you were talking about how you saw finance and mm-hmm. operations kind of make decisions. Um, and probably you saw them because in an M&A, based off of what you said and what we know, it's PACE. So you're asking them to make decisions, which typically they would probably take months to make in under standard circumstances. Um, how? What types of things did you learn on what you needed to arm them with to make those quick decisions that they felt good about?
1: So in, in M and A, you've got to go for speed over perfection at times. You know when the deals are available, and you can you can find that there are companies that uh, businesses wanted to acquire for years and years, and then. Through, through whatever chance or whatever changes at leadership of the, the organization or you know, where interest rates are at or what available cash is at, the deal has an opportunity to go ahead. And when you have that chance that a business has got to take it. And so you see people moving uh, at that great speed of trying to make your kind of best guess of the due diligence of, is this right? Kind of describe like due diligence in MA is a little bit like dating and kind of getting to know the person, but it's not until you're actually married and together. You probably have a full insight into that. Uh, <laughs> you kind of get, get the, the truth behind it. And then, yeah. Yeah. I was going to
0: say, there's a lot of manipulation on that other side. I mean, there are a lot yes. of, pretending, I'm
1: sure, <laughs> painting the pig of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look from both sides as well, right? Uh, and you see that as well that you're, you're looking at a business thinking about how they might fit into us. You're looking at what do they do well because they must do something really well. Otherwise, you will not want to buy them. There's a reason that they are doing something either because it's something you can't do or they're doing something you already do and they're doing it better. And that's why you want to buy them. And then how do you pull out those key pieces without killing the business? And that's kind of, one of the interesting things from the business side and the operations side you see a lot as well, is that if you just force them into your existing structures yeah. and keep everything the same that you're doing, that's not always going to work. You kind of have to know what the rationale for the deal is. So, um, you know, starting so you say starting with the end in mind there, and that's something that, that we want to be keep reinforcing as well um, in every decision that's being made. So there's usually a couple of key reasons that someone's doing a deal. You want to be able to challenge early the the business on that and have them be able to repeat that. It's almost like everyone's so bored by the end about learning constantly why you're doing the transaction and having a couple of like just key sort of north stars and yeah. then every decision that's being made you can quickly look at those and say does this help us get where we yeah. want to get? does it help us uh, attract and retain employees that we're required particularly if yeah. you're and I say on the employee side I think one of the, the advantages that HR can bring is keeping employees often yeah. when you're buying a company it's, it's rare that you're just buying it for a very specific asset like a, even if you're buying a, a technology you need the people who built it initially to, to integrate it. Maybe that you don't need them in six months or two years' time, but you do need them initially point, if you're yeah. doing it because they have a better go-to-market strategy. You need to keep that sales team. You need to keep them happy, and they need to be able to operate within your, your group. And a lot of the time, you're buying someone small. That, that, that's pretty common. I found out why we buy a lot of small startup-type businesses um, who have kind of interesting, innovative ideas and want to be a part of that people who work there they like working at a startup that's why they're there and they come into a large publicly listed (laughs) corporate it's not necessarily immediately attractive for them so how do you help them see and all the great stuff you're doing around your employee value proposition that that would make them have a successful career with you because in the open market they're not applying to jobs at one they're applying to jobs at startups it's
2: interesting. Yeah.
1: James, I more I, I, I kind of oh. want to go
0: back real quick because something that you talked about was the succession. It's almost like succession planning, James. Yes, in essence, yeah. right. I mean, it, it really is because you're you're looking to transfer that knowledge in a given time, and hopefully you retain it, but at least you have transferred that knowledge. How did you? How do you get finance from outside of the numbers, right? Because because from my my perspective, what I've seen, it's a, it's a financially driven decision. Yes, they have that end goal in mind. Um, But the idea that they'll come in and either hit that revenue or exceed that revenue within the first year might not be a truly obtainable goal. And sometimes, and like you're saying with those M&A activities, having those North Stars, I love how you said that because it can be such a grueling process that you almost forget why the heck you started the process to begin with. So I love that to kind of bring people back to say, this is what we're focused on. If if we determine that it's not in alignment, then maybe that's our opportunity to get out of this deal that we thought that we actually wanted. How do you get them away from just the P&L statement though, right? Cause you talked, I talked to finance people. I jokingly say, what's the one number that you actually believe on your balance sheet and it's cash. How do you get more behind the numbers, right? And what makes up those numbers? And I guess, how do you plead your case to bring in that people component to retain that knowledge and retain that staff, which is critical to the success of that merger or acquisition.
1: Yeah. So I think you start by building credibility with finance on the numbers. There's huge value to get HR in early. And it doesn't mean that HR needs to be in there talking about um, specific policies and, and cultural issues immediately, but just be in the conversation and listening in. And showing the value of that. And we've done that early in a couple of deals. And we've, I've demonstrated some of my own, my own value by being able to point out to is that we are kicking the tires on their model, that we can understand their model and we can speak their language that we can test things, particularly around compensation and benefits so as big mm-hmm. items in a due diligence, whether it's changing controls in exec contracts, whether it's moving people into your comp structure, into your benefits, because ultimately if you keep acquiring companies and you have 10 sets of benefits, it's just not really workable for people sat side by side doing similar jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and just making sure they can see the value there that we can test what's in their numbers. Um, you know, one of the kind of the quick and easy mistakes that I've seen in the past in my consulting world is that finance will just assume that the employee cost model from the, the, same. Yeah. the buyer is just the same when they come yeah. over and it's not yeah. at all it's totally different yeah uh, you know they, they go into a different model you have a different way of structuring them in your career framework and just making sure they see those numbers and Kind of showing that you can add value there is important. I think legal entity structure is important as well when we go international. A lot of mm-hmm. finance teams will be sat in the US and, and just assume that, oh, in Europe we'll just bung these people together. And actually there's so many rules and regulations and nuance to, to think about that it, it's not actually that simple. So you're helping them build the right financial model that shows the right speed of integration as That's well, how quickly you can move. And then, particularly once you've got you know, works councils and things like that in, in in your EU countries, it can get real messy, and maybe you know you're not delivering all the synergies as quick as you want. So, I think there's value there. I think bringing it in, and then once you've kind of proven that worth, you're you're helping them think through the integration plans and able to look across the interdependencies between these different groups. Yeah. Yeah. And culture is a huge part of MA and the people organizations typically end up owning that. Um, And you can see culture in all the interactions that these groups have, and that you can add value with that as well um, by helping them understand what the change in communication strategy is, that every interaction that a finance person or a technology person has with the other side is going to form part of that change strategy and getting them a little bit in the right mindset to have those conversations, to be kind of aware and cognizant of what the other side are thinking as well. Um, I, you know, I've seen issues where, where finance kind of just said, oh, well, we'll absorb their shared service and then maybe you don't need the headcount. Yeah. If you suddenly decide to do a reduction in force on the, on their shared service, that, that's fine and maybe it makes financial sense. But if they're a small startup and there's only like 30 of them and they're all sat in an office somewhere and they're offsite, and they're not part of your headquarters and suddenly the two, three people they've been working with for years disappear, that has a huge effect on the rest of the business, on the trust and how you're bringing these groups together. So kind of getting that um, understanding that everything you say to these people is taken you know, very seriously and probably a little bit more sensitive than, than normal. Because any change you're implementing on a business process, they think, well, what does that mean for my job? What does that mean for my compensation, my rewards? Um yeah, and, and so you want to you want to add a lot of value there by getting those teams in, in other areas of shared service who may be a bit more just sort of straightforward and robotic in their uh, interactions because they know what they're trying to get. Thinking about some of these people issues and some of these cultural issues about how how you work with these groups together.
2: That's great. Wow, you gave so many good examples there, James. That was fantastic. Um, for for folks who may be listening, you know, maybe new to this who maybe haven't experienced their own M&A, you know, activity, what, what would be your top tips you would give HR professionals as they think about due diligence and,
1: you know, what their role should be in, in M&A? Yeah, sure. So I kind of mentioned one already. But you're starting with the end in mind. So to find out what those key points are about why you're doing the deal, and keep those in mind with every decision that you're making as well. Some of the decisions you make, that they're, they're also no brainer, right? You're not gonna have two sets of 401ks and medical plans of people are doing the same job working side by side. And so if you're 100 people and they're 10, they're gonna come into your systems. But just question yourself, take that two minutes to think, why are we doing this? And why does this integration make sense? And does it fit these top three points? And then use that to help in your communications as well. So when you're explaining it, to the other side and often your integration team once your post close, will include people from the other side And it's important to be hearing uh, their side but also once they understand what you're trying to do because you're all one company now uh, and just keep keep you know referring back to those three points sometimes it, i've been guilty of it myself where i'm thinking well we my team's got time now so we should integrate this immediately and not wait you know six months or something down the line and then when i'm looking at why we did the deal it might actually be because we wanted to keep that business unit separate, because they do something great, and we just wanted to add it into our um, into our, our chain to get um, products out to our clients. And so actually, it will be a little bit more standalone. It doesn't need to be as heavily integrated, or we don't have to do it on day one, and we don't have to be as disruptive. And so it's just finding the right, the right stretch with that. Um, actually, getting HR in earlier and being prepared, um, when you go into an m and deal, you might not well know about it until it's there. And that's understandable. <laughs> it's shareholder material information and corp dev and uh, CEOs and CFOs will be having discussions with companies all the time. Sure. But you're not gonna tell everyone about that because it's, it's market sensitive information. So when you do find out about a deal, it's usually go time. So yeah. can you be prepared? Can you do uh, like a readiness training? Can you have a bit of a toolkit ready to go? Um my one piece of advice on that would be don't do too much. I when I think back to my consulting days, there's about five, six years ago, there's a company, we wrote this uh MA playbook for them, and it must have been like a hundred pages of prose and they wanted all the stuff (laughs) and all the paragraphs. And I'm thinking who who would use that? (laughs) You know, you find out there's a deal, you're not gonna read through this uh this huge sort of binder of, uh, of information. But if you find out there's a deal. And then you've got an MA due diligence checklist. So you can quickly go, right, do I have these 10 yeah. pieces of key information? Have I thought about these key integration activities? Because I have a project plan ready to go that I can tweak and adjust with this deal and think about back to that first point, why we're doing it. Does this plan fit? You can move much faster. Um, you know, if I think about checklists, things like that are helpful to go with. Um, both for diligence, thinking about checking through the asset or sale purchase agreement, making sure that people are protected, um, you know, what you're, you're looking through on employees and execs, contracts in particular, what are the key items that I want to pull out and the things that I want to know originally. So, so I would include that as well. And then probably the third most important is the change in the communications activities. Um, you know, I, I've both been working in M&A for a long time and I've been at companies that bought been bought, I've been at a company that, that merged with a competitor. Even with my experience on the MA side, I still feel a little bit uneasy. And that's somebody who's used to this uncertainty and I'm used to the ambiguity uh, ambiguity of MA. Um, and I still suddenly think, oh, is my job safe? Like <laughs> You know, oh, what am I going to do day to day? Am I, am I you-
0: so good? I'm working myself out of this job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: you, you do them. It's a, it's one of the first things you worry about, and it, it's kind of a nonsense. You you're bringing, up, particularly one. Uh, I was at uh, uh, Towers Watson when they, they merged with Willis, right? And these groups do very different things, but there was a lot of sort of areas that they could work together and. and it would make no sense to suddenly get rid of all the, the consulting side of that business but it's the first thing that goes through your head is oh, sure. don't worry about it? and so you think about that everyone everyone's going through that and then it's even more so if you've uh, not been through that experience before there's so much uncertainty with change yeah. getting people to, to understand why the change is happening how it's going to affect them being open in the communications and often that can mean we don't know and telling people, hey, we don't know. We are, we're making these decisions, but we're aware that you have these questions and just being open as, as far yeah. as you can with these groups is, uh, is really important. That's so on the changing in comm side, if you can find a friendly face on the other side as well, because often I, I've done sessions where we bought a company, we'll go in, we'll do the town hall, the business leader will speak and we'll say, James is from HR and I'll speak and I'll say my, my blurb and no one will ask any questions. And that's because the are nervous, right? it's the first interaction with, uh, with the new employer and they don't yeah. know what, what should be asked publicly or privately. and suddenly somebody on the other side will get like maybe their HR person or a key leader who's kind of trusted will get a hundred odd questions from their team. So finding that channel as well so that you can hear about what's actually happening on that side, what the actual concerns are, what you can ease uh, and what you can help to articulate why we're doing the deal and how it impacts these people as well. Yeah.
0: Well, it's really arming arming everybody with understanding the why, Um, so everybody can kind of move in that same ultimate direction and understand what that future direction looks like. And it's funny because I think, like you said, sometimes when you acquire companies, the company that's getting acquired tries to hold on to um, decision-making and the power to make decisions or impact change. And it's kind of a very challenging dynamic because it takes a lot of critical conversations. Um, how do you arm your managers and you, you talked about having this plan and really arming the other side. What have you found most important in that communication strategy where you're, I love how you sit down and say HR in first to really learn the common tongue right what words do they use what do they call the same thing that we call it mm-hmm. um, just to find that um, same language uh, to to build that baseline. Yeah. Once you've established that, how do you arm the managers and and to have these, I guess, critical conversations? Because it's probably them that are going to get to ask the questions, as you know. Um, how do you arm them with that information? What have you found most effective?
1: So absolutely sharing what you found. Um, often when you're doing diligence, the team's very tight and small and you're signing NDAs and not everyone around the business knows what's happening. Um, but once the deal is publicly announced that either you've signed an agreement or the deal maybe has even signed and closed already. You can bring in a much wider group. But how do you transfer everything you've learned? Yes. And how do you get that as well from other areas of the business? It's likely you the know, corporate finance, other groups would have had a lot more conversations than, than HR would have had. How do you get that knowledge and disseminate and, it? And there's a few ways you can you can do it. Um, I actually saw something really good and it's not my own, it was at a round table recently and there's a large technology company there uh, we're presenting and they had just a one-page sheet on cultural observations that they gave to leaders whenever they go for the first meeting and, you know, that can be just a bit of fact-finding on their side, you know, it's, it's not that we're going out it's to buy a company, we're just having that first exploratory discussion and they said to, to the leaders, just take five minutes on the plane on the way back, answer these key couple of observations and questions. And just using that to then start informing your plan about how you're gonna to communicate to these groups. Establishing which leaders are key and who on the second level is key as well. You, you can often find with leaders on an acquisition uh, of, the, of the acquired company, they're gonna get a huge winfall. Often these are leaders with equity or maybe they even founded the company. Mm-hmm. They get several million dollars from the transaction. Whatever I pay them in compensation of benefits isn't going to necessarily make them stick around. So how do you build either a challenging role for them in the new organization that gets them interested in intellectually they want to stay, or if they're happy to take their money and go to the beach and you know <laughs> the they're I'd be doing <laughs> the same. Uh, then how do we start to establish who's the level below? What's their succession planning? Have exactly. the critical knowledge to make this deal work.
0: And I think you bring up a really important point because um, I think we're all title hungry or and titles are are pretty much how we understand, well, who has influence within an organization, but to your culture assessment, you could probably quickly learn those second tier managers or even middle managers. Or frankly, people with even out of manager title are those silent influencers that have a lot of influence on their peers, the overall um employee sentiment of their area. You know, they what they say a lot of people more people believe and trust just because they've been with that organization. It's I just find it very difficult without tools to really help organizations identify those those critical individuals because you can't be on site for a year, you can't be on site for months. You're trying to learn that, and I loved how you said it's not until your marriage that you realize your wife leaves a uh, a glass on the table without a coaster, right? And that drives you insane, but you never knew it because you never saw it before. Um, how do you? How have you found ways to, I guess, find those critical components necessary to kind of move that bus forward with those silent info influencers when performance is kind of a lackluster science in most organizations. So then you can't really go off of the performance. How do you identify those silent leaders and those key key, key performance indicators of those individuals?
1: So yeah, I mentioned earlier, being in there early and being an observer is really helpful. If, even if you're just going along and listening to the finance meeting, the technology meeting, and just hearing who actually speaks, who answers the questions. Yeah. That That's important. point. You know, if, if there's a CTO there who maybe is exiting because, well, who of his team is actually in the room on their side, that kind of gives you a bit of, of an understanding as well. Um, you can sort of take a bit of a delay in when you integrate people into, say, your career framework and your job leveling because you need more time to understand what they've got. Um, Certainly in diligence, I'm asking for job descriptions and I'm trying to match that up with similar roles in, in Wiley and taking that first pass so that I have an idea in my mind where they would fit. But there's, uh, there's a long way to go on that. So maybe you want to introduce that straight away. You're right, performance management is tough um, post-integration. Uh, I haven't had a good solution for that yet because particularly if you bring people into a new bonus scheme, you tend to mark everyone as net objectives in the first year. It's hard to identify who who's didn't and who exceeded, because you just don't have the experience of those businesses. Sure. Um, but you can look back and, and sort of see a little bit of that. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's just getting people meeting and um, maybe making key people, people you think are key, part of your integration team as well. So you yep. get to work side by That's side. Huge. And then they also get to understand why decisions are being made as well and, and articulate those further down the line as well, or at least feel part of it. And they should be, right? They, they they know their business better than you do. So you should have them involved in some of the decision-making.
2: That's great. James, I've got a question for you here. And I guess maybe since just due to your history and being a consultant, and it's now part of what you do day in and day out. What, what would you say was one of your biggest lessons learned from an MA standpoint or? Where did things not go well? Where did maybe you made a few mistakes and learned from it? What stands out to you?
1: Yeah, I think it's understanding that not every deal is going to work. Um, most deals fail. Um that was one of our, our leaders, well of the facilities I told me early on. And then you look at it in terms of just the pure share price statistic. It's provable. Um, yeah. and, and so can't understand why is this deal different? And asking that question and understanding it. And maybe not right every time, but there needs to be a reason. Why is why is this deal going to succeed where eighty percent of other deals failed um, in in the past? And it is a high percentage. I was looking just before this trying to find um, the stat, and there was a a Harvard Business Review um, that was saying it's between seventy and ninety percent of acquisitions fail, don't don't achieve the goals, which is huge. And at some point those deals made sense. On paper, it made sense, or you know, we thought you have access to um, a new company, a new market. Financially, it makes sense, but it's the people doing that work day to day that are gonna make the difference and getting them all aligned, pulling in the right direction. Ultimately, if you need to restructure it, do you select the right people going forward? Do you retain people and how much money do you need to give them retention awards, things like that, to make sure you keep them? Um, all of those, there's a lot of moving parts, but it's all related to people. Um, I used the word culture early on in the discussion, and, and that's all part of it, really. And culture is kind of this all-encompassing uh, thing about how we get work done. But it is, it's, it's what's so critical. And, and I've seen, I've seen deals fail where you have two competitors by each other, and they despise each other. It's just they, they have been brought up to to hate each other. You know, they are two big yeah. rivals. It's like, you know, you I don't know if you put the, the Jets and the Giants into one team now going forward, you know? They're, they're, oh, yeah. You spend forever as uh, we did it as,
0: with high schools. I mean, in, in my hometown, we, that was like we had the Erie bell. It was east side versus west side, you know, and it was um, it was a big to do. And when they merged even high schools, the parents that went through those schools had a harder time adjusting than the kids. You know, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, I love what you said, though, about 70 to 90 percent of m and failing, because I kind of go back to that intangible value that Ocean Tomo is putting on organizations based on the S&P, saying 90 percent of their value today is intangible it's almost another key data point to suggest the importance of people and the human capital involved within the business. Just another arrow in the quiver to kind of, I guess, prioritize culture, prioritize that people perspective and understand that, yes, process is important, but development at the end of the day, your company might be able to identify different potential that the other organization was unable to, and then be more effective at developing it over time. But It is a waltz, right? It is a, uh, it's a, it's a first date. It's a forced first date. It's almost like a blind date. Um, You wouldn't have signed up for it if you, if you had the choice, unless you were one of the parties that were getting the financial benefit of obviously the sale of the organization. So um, I love that. Uh, Switching gears just a little bit, because I think you have more of an international purview, right? Um, With a lot of the organizations that you have worked with previously in the previous consulting role, and obviously today. And there was this concept that I saw on LinkedIn and uh, we were talking about a little bit before we got on the show, but this idea of an international set rate um, for compensation. So if I'm a software developer and I'm in Brazil, I get the same rate as I would in Silicon Valley. Um, The whole idea where that is like, I guess the idea of true equity. I have to ask you, like, do you think that could be an effective strategy for the future? I, I will caveat that that we're, we're eight women are still in the United States alone are still getting 82 cents to the dollar. So I don't know if this is really going to happen. But what are your thoughts on that? Would Would it make that level of transparency easier for organizations to explain as the federal government and state government in the United States is now forcing kind of that transparency on these organizations?
1: What are your thoughts on that? So uh, my mind immediately jumps to the administrative difficulty of it, but I I think if you're paying people the same, maybe across in a particular country to give everyone's working remotely, there's, uh, there, there's value in that there's a huge value in pay transparency. And we've, we've actually been really ahead of that at Wiley, and I'm really proud of that as well. But we are looking at states like Colorado and New York, asking for, for, Pay ranges to be published, and we said, "Well, it's coming across the US, so we just should be doing it across the, the whole organization So we rolled it yeah. in the US, and the UK, and now rolling it out globally as well, and letting people know where they sit within our pay ranges and giving them a bit more, giving them and managers guidance about how we set the pay ranges as well. Mm-hmm. See, it is actually a really important part of our DE and I efforts as well, so that people understand um, you know what a job pays and the you know, how their experience, the staging of their career and, and their capabilities um, affect where they're paid at. And then we do a lot of testing of about and looking at uh, different demographic information and making sure of that. You, um, yeah, that's great. Rightly. Um, to go back to the original question you asked, which is more difficult, could I pay someone in Brazil the same that I pay them in? And they're working in Hoboken, in New York. Uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, I should even say. Yeah. Um, then I think it's difficult. There's just so much nuance and difference between the, the, those countries. You're not delivering a like for like product. Uh, you're possibly delivering it to, to different groups and different people. And naturally, companies are going to look if they can outsource something for quality mm. uh, that is the same, they will do so to a cheaper location. We've seen that in, in all industries. Um, it's by Africa, I think Nigeria's uh, the GDP is up like, or their
0: stock exchange yeah. is up like 300% since January. It's, a, it's like the last final frontier of the cheapest labor on the globe.
1: I do think if you paid everyone equally, why would you not have them all being paid in a, in say the same office and in the same location, so mm-hmm. that you're yeah. taking advantage of that in-person collaborative working where you can move a little bit faster maybe than you can if you're just everyone's remote. So it possibly even takes away some of the uh, competitive
0: advantage of this country. Agreed. And, and I I, so. I love your point too, James, about saying the uh, tied into your diversity, equity, inclusion. I, I I preach transparency. You want to have an effective EVP, be transparent. Tell them, tell them the numbers that you're actually at because that builds trust. Mm-hmm. And some with trust that others are unwilling to give. You kind of force their hand to trust you and trust the environment. So I love it. It's interesting to hear you and Chris, as we were kind of getting on the show today, you guys both have said like our company's stand was to do the right thing and just make it a national practice. That to me as as an employee, right, or a prospective applicant, if I notice that type of behavior by that business where they're very selective as to where they're disclosing those comp ranges, that tells me a lot about that organization. I, I heard a great woman shared a great quote yesterday, how you treat your next employee is indicative of the true culture of the organization. And I love how she said that because ghosting of a candidate is kind of indicative of what that process, how they're viewing an individual just within the business and the potential value that they add. Um, so that I think that could be an, an interesting litmus test for those that are kind of in this career transition to really look at the organizations that made that a national practice. Just like we said the most successful diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives weren't for the business reason. It was just the right thing to do. Yes, whatever came out of it, I've heard all the good things, but this is just the right thing to do. And organically, they got some and reaped the benefits of that diversity. Um, so that's just fascinating to think about just hearing your two company stances, because I wonder how many companies will be ultra selective on where they share and how they share. Uh,
1: I agree. And that's why I, I'm really pleased that we did such a a good job on transparency with wiley i I talk to peers in the industry and particularly in financial companies and there's a lot of worry about that that there's just huge difference between say a hq uh new york salary and then people are doing back office functions elsewhere in the country and it's tough to do that messaging so i think it's eventually going to come out the way um states are going so getting ahead of that is the right thing to do and it also just builds trust in you as an employer as well. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, this is fantastic, James. Else, huh? Yeah. You got anything got, else I can talk yep.
0: all day to James?
2: We just got one last thing. I want to hear that Jersey accent. Come on. 13
1: years <laughs> <drink it>. <laughs> nice. Hoboken. Hoboken accent. I'm going to say that where I live in Jersey City is is the most diverse city in the US. So we have yeah, everyone from all over the world. So I think my accent is just right for that. which is a real real cop out right because then if you go to i I definitely in some of these other places i have uh, been very out of place that that's hilarious well
0: james uh thanks for being a good sport thanks for sharing your your knowledge with us and those that listen to our show and um obviously uh it's it's Kind of the wave of the future. I think a lot more people are going to have to get comfortable with this activity, and I think yeah. learning lessons from organizations that did fail in the seventy to ninety percent, they probably have a lot of lessons to share, right? And I think a lot of things that they wish they did differently or said they didn't look at and wish they saw or wish they knew before making that acquisition. So, thanks for increasing the likelihood that we might help uh, the thirty percent be a little bit more successful exactly. here. Um, over time. But really appreciate uh, you coming on, sharing your story with us, telling us how you kind of got in this space and what you're finding your passion and and purpose really to be in the role. Because I think when people think of HR, they think of that open enrollment once a year or the knock at the door. um, And and here you are trying to look out for others, whether they even knew it or not. So it's it's a powerful story, James. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having
1: me. Of course. That's fantastic. Thanks so much. (laughs)
2: I'm not going